You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. Episode of Digital Noise. This being the 201st episode. Yes, John, you narrowly missed the 200th episode. I got back together with Brian Salisbury and Luke Mullen, who I started the show with years and years ago. Uh, I know those guys. Yeah, you do. Uh, to do that 200th, which largely ended up a lot of drunken ranting, but it was a good time had by all. Um, this time, not so much drunkenness, more serious about telling you about some movies that are coming out. John Golson is my co-host this week. Welcome, John. Hello, Chris. Uh, why don't you start off by telling people about your comic book that your uh, oh, writer just won an award for. Yeah, Drew Edwards. He's a writer. He's been doing um, Halloween Man for, I think, about 18 years at this point. Maybe a little bit less than that. Um you know, he's had a he had a crossover with Hack Slash that was published by Image. That was probably one of his his higher profile books. Um, but yeah, Halloween Man. He just won a uh, Best of Austin award, and we have our anthology, the Halloween Man Bat City Special, available now uh, on Comicsology um, that people can can buy and read. And I did uh, I did four pages of the the anthology. Um, so I did a story about uh, Halloween Man, who's sort of a zombie superhero. Um, going to therapy for the first time, um, which was fun. It was fun. I mean, eventually he's got to, right? Yeah. Did it work out well for him? Uh, it Yes, you get – it has a an optimistic ending. It also has like – it has nice little um, Easter eggs because the doctor's name is Van Helsing. And originally in my notes – this is like behind-the-scenes information for anyone that wants to pick it up. And originally in my notes, he had written it as uh, looking like Don, Donald Pleasance. He wanted the psychiatrist to look like Donald Pleasance. Right. And I didn't push back. I didn't argue with it. I didn't – I just went, okay – I don't have any particular – I like the Halloween movies, but I'm not necessarily in love with, like, Donald Pleasance. And then he he got back to me and was like, actually, um, I'm going to make it a descendant of Van Helsing. Draw him like uh, Edward Van Sloan from the 31 Dracula. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was like, oh, yes. Uh, and much, so the psychiatrist – yeah. So the psychiatrist is based on Edward Van Sloan, and you can see family portraits in his uh, office of Peter Cushing. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. So there's some cool cool little movie stuff in there. Uh, so check that out, which, once again, you can pick up on Comixology, and you can follow John at? Uh, right now, at <laughs> nowhere. Not a Twitter address or something? <laughs> no, the political landscape is uh, is way too poisonous, Fair. and I, I was spending too much time creating anxiety for myself by hitting refresh. There's a lot um, of people out there uh, and so doing I the left. same thing. Yeah, I don't blame you. I uh, I wanted more control over what I was thinking about, and I felt like I was constantly, I was I was refreshing a wall of negativity, and and Twitter changed so much too. I mean, uh, there's so much in my you know social life over the past decade spent making new friends, and I love it for that. But in the past year. I think the negatives have outweighed the positives for me as a user, and I and I but I was a heavy user too. Yeah, so. I, I was one of those people that I could take about two minutes, and then I had to I had to get out at any time. It didn't even matter if it was bad. It was just like my eyes start to cross. I'm like, yeah, I don't care that much. Yeah, social media starts to bore me rather quickly unless I'm reading responses to something I wrote, mm-hmm. and I pretty much banned everyone who's a complete and utter prick that I've come across <laughs> with that. Like, I'll, I'll give someone one warning. Like, okay, that's just rude. 
And I don't like that. So if you're going to come on my page and just say rude things, then goodbye. And if they respond with something rude, then delete. Yeah. And I've, I've whittled it down to a group of generally polite and nice people, which is, which is great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's not even like, I know there's the conversation, there's a big conversation about Twitter and Facebook in regards to looking out for your privacy and what they do with your data. And I'm not so much concerned about that. To your point, Twitter's a party where my windows are open and Facebook's a party where my windows are closed. Right. Same, and, same thing here. I just don't read Twitter as closely, I think. Yeah, and I don't yeah. want people like yelling, you suck into my party. So I have, <laughs> so I have the windows closed on Facebook. It's all friends and family. So that's funny. Um, I will say so I can still find you on Facebook. Just not I am on all Facebook, these other but people. No, no listeners. Well, you can find John Bilson <laughs> at one of us.net on your occasional digital noise yes, episode. You can find me at Comixology. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about our first movie this week, which honestly, I have never gone back and rewatched since it came out in the theaters, which is City Slickers. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. I know. It's considered by a lot of people to be a real comedy classic. But even when I saw it, when it came out in 1991, maybe I was 21, definitely not the age this movie was pointed at. It's pointed at either over 30 or under 15. Like, the I was that age of like... What the fuck? This is so innocuous. I don't want to watch this. Yeah. I hadn't seen it since VHS, so I've seen it slightly more recent than you. <laughs> Just barely. <laughs> By about a six-month window. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, well, yeah, I mean, Jack Palance was still alive the last time you saw it, so. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's true. Uh, if you've never seen this, which I can't imagine, I mean, maybe if you're one of our listeners from out of the country, uh, it was starring Billy Crystal... Uh, Daniel Stern and Bruno Kirby, who are three, the bestest of old friends, who are always looking for something new to do to reaffirm their manhood, although that seems to be mainly kind of Bruno Kirby's thing. They, they all are, do. they all kind of are dealing with their own midlife crises yeah. in different ways They're all to different to be, extremes. <laughs> 29 or 30. Yeah. You're like, no, you're not. You're yeah. like 49 or 50. But, um, yeah, yeah, they're all, and so this time they're like, oh, we're going to go to a dude ranch and do dude ranch stuff, which is, a thing that people having crises, I guess, do with their masculinity. Yeah, I don't know. That was one of the things that nowadays, and it wasn't me trying to nitpick, but they do a real cattle drive from California to Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I was like, without a safety net, without any kind of like backup plan or, hey, meet this guy in the city, like... And, and I yeah. thought there was something about watching it now that I was like, wait, is that the way they actually would do that? If I just went on a... Sort of a vacation fantasy well, cowboy camp. It was so weird. Would they let me do a cattle run, interstate it's cattle run? Them, two guys who are supposed <laughs> to be basically Ben and Jerry from Ben and Jerry's, yeah. uh, and and Helen Slater, who is who is there as near as I can tell, she has one purpose, which is to reflect how each man perceives her. She has no personality of her own. She is only there for each guy to have their own opinion <laughs> about what she, who she is to them. Dude, there's the part where they, they are like, what do women talk about? And she's like, we talk about relationships, you know? And I was like, that's such a dumb male screenwriter thing of like, yeah. I really, I guess this is what women talk about. So I'm going to make her say this. And I, when she says it, I'm just like, nobody would, first of all, nobody would say that. Second of all, that's not what women talk about. It's, she's just so, she, like the rest of this movie, is okay. She's an embarrassment of a character. You so clearly by by male screenwriters who could give a fuck. We're only there because these guys are going through midlife crises and they've got to be able to have somebody to like target mm-hmm. out their reflections and their thoughts about said thing on. Um, 
Anyway, above and beyond that, you have Jack Palance, who is really I still, I mean, I get it. This is pretty much the, sorry we didn't give you the Academy Award back when you deserved it for Shane, but I guess since you're near death, we'll give it to you for this role. We are basically playing a caricature of a caricature of yourself. And honestly, barely trying. He was in the movie a lot less than I remembered. Yeah, he's not he, in it much, and he's it, like, it just doesn't seem like he's putting any effort in. It felt like from the time that he enters the movie to the time he exits the movie was maybe, you know, maybe 15 minutes of a movie that runs about an hour and 45 minutes. Right. Was wow. it, I was surprised that I, in my head I thought that he was with them for a longer period of time on the on that uh, on cattle, cattle drive. Yeah, cattle yeah drive. and you're right. The cattle drive, it's like, so it's Jack Palance who's all, even in the context of the movie is ancient and two rapists. <laughs> and a drunk. And a drunk. Keeping an eye on them. And you're like, wow, this is a lawsuit waiting to happen. And like, and, like, I, and again, I'm not trying to be nitpicky. People <laughs> literally die along the way and are buried in unmarked graves out in the desert. Yeah. There's a scene where somebody gets full on, like, has a full, and, it, and in a comedy, I'm like, when Daniel Stern has the full on, like, like, traumatic breakdown, he has, like, a mental breakdown, and he points the gun at the guy and tells the guy he's going to kill him. And Billy Crystal basically, like, kind of talks him down. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, they're just back to the trail the next day. And I'm like, yeah. what a dark scene for a comedy to see <laughs> to see Daniel Stern in this, like, kind of gentle, like, ambling cowboy comedy to see Daniel Stern have a complete mental breakdown and almost shoot somebody. Yeah, that whole sequence is very dark and weird. I, I, it, I'll, I'll be honest, this movie kind of baffles me that people still love it as much as they do. It baffled me at the time. Once again, I realized it was not really my age type of movie, but still now watching it where I should be the guy, I should be in the exact right state to watch this and go like, yeah, I'm like almost 50. I watch this. Seems like this. I'm the guy this movie's for. I love Westerns. I understand that feeling of having missed something. And I still feel this is really kind of puerile and kind of sexist and kind of not that funny. It's a movie star vehicle. And, yeah. I mean, that's really what it boils down to. Because the movie I, – I went and looked up the box office stats because I remembered it being a gigantic hit. And it was that year. It was it was a really big hit that year. But I think, I think part of that – a big chunk of it is owed to just the star power of Billy Crystal, who at that time was like an A-list – like top of the line movie star. Oh yeah, uh, I mean know, coming from off the of mid eighties all the way to the, about the mid nineties, he had a good tenure. Coming off of family. one of the top three runs on Saturday Night Live of all time, yeah. like like his period of Saturday Night Live was right there. I put it up neck and neck against the original crew, yeah. like as far as so great and everyone was watching and everyone was talking about it that that alone had made him such a big star that he walked his way into being a marquee star right yeah. after that. You know? Yeah, I, yeah, it was, uh, and and I think. I think the the appeal of it depends on him and and it as a star vehicle because I think if you start to think about replacing him with anybody else who could capably do the role like I, let's just throw out a non-star capable name like Treat Williams as the lead in City Slickers it's like it is it's, st it's still the movie quality remains the same but the box office isn't there and I don't think the love for it would be there you know I think I think again it just comes down to it being the right vehicle at the right time for Billy Crystal. Um, but, uh, but I would not, uh, well, what was with the whole thing at the end with the whole, suddenly we're going to be about vegetarianism. <laughs> I was like, this is a movie on a ranch. It's the only thing I remember from the sequel is that the cow from this one is his pet in the second one. It's right. The only thing I remember about the second, by one. the way, he's riding the same horse in the second one. And do you know why? 
Because he fell so madly in love with it in real life, he adopted. He actually bought it. Oh, yeah. So it became his horse. It became his okay. real horse. So he he like oh, I love this horse so much. I can't. I can't. He broke his heart the idea that he wouldn't get to spend every day with it anymore. Billy yeah. Crystal, that is, and was like, nope, I'm buying the horse. Uh, there is some bonus features: audio commentary by director Ron Underwood and stars Billy Crystal and Daniel Cern. There is a couple different little featurettes. Uh, and then some deleted scenes, theatrical trailer. I think pretty much everything here is taken from previously existing things. Um, but that being said, Shout Factory, who has been recently putting out a lot of sort of the stuff that depending on your mileage may vary between A and D grade 80s and 90s comedies that they've been putting out lately. Um Doing a decent job. It's a nice little fix-up. It looks great. They put pretty much every extra feature that already exists um, uh, out there crammed into this thing. So, and I was surprised at the number of fans that this movie has as well. Because when in talking about like, oh, I you know letting people know that I had just watched it in a room full of people. Oh, I love that movie. Oh, I grew up with that movie. Oh, I watch that movie all the time. Oh, I'll, anytime I catch that, I'll I'll sit and watch the whole thing. So. You and I may be in a minority. Yeah, we're out. Just being like, it's fine. I've long <laughs> since understood that I'm an outlier when it comes to, to uh, City Slickers. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know why. I don't know what about it specifically that makes other people love it and make me go, meh. But there you are. Maybe we actually are descended from aliens, John, as we theorized earlier. I, I think this is the proof we've been waiting for. Well, another Shout Factory re-release is one I was actually much more excited to get than City Slickers, and that's because, to me, this really is an all-time comedy classic, which is Get Shorty. I'm always shocked how many people have never actually seen this film. Like, I'm shocked how many people have never even heard of this film, and even Elmore Leonard, who, of course, is... A endless number of films have been adapted from his works, and even TV shows, like Justified, is based on an Elmore Leonard uh, novel... are like don't realize he was proudly trumpeting to the skies. This is the best adaptation of any of my work. This is the best one that's ever been done. It's dead on. This is the book, um, which is kind of weird if you've watched the new show. How much they completely and utterly changed in it, even in tone. That you're like, why would you try to get away from? Is there a show? There's a TV show. It's on its second season. Oh, it gets shorty television show. Yeah, with uh, uh, what's his name from the IT crowd, uh, uh, Irish actor. Oh, um, yeah, that guy. Yeah, that guy. You know what I'm talking about, <laughs> Chris. Um... O'Dowd. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I w- I've only watched the pilot for, but I was like, it's not that this is bad. It's just not get shorty at all. I mean, not even. It's not even comedy. Yeah. <laughs> but the original is indeed a crime comedy that was John Travolta's very triumphant follow up to Pulp Fiction. I mean, like after Pulp Fiction, we were, I, I remember thinking, is this just going to be a a fluke? His comeback because Tarantino's so great he can make anybody look good. But short, Get Shorty is the movie that sort of assured, I think, for people that Travolta was going to be around for a while again yeah. after that as a big star because it, it was a huge success. And I, I actually, rewatching this, I still, I laugh out loud multiple times watching this. The story being John Travolta plays Chili Palmer, which has got to be one of the greatest names in fiction ever. There's a loan shark who works for the mob in Miami. He has problems with another mobster there, Ray Bones Barboni, played very like iconically by Dennis Farina, mm-hmm. who's just a real prick. Uh, and the deal is like they like he, he, he like Travolta fucks with him and succeeds every time. And Bones is like going to his boss, you gotta help me, let me take this guy out. And he's like, I can't. He works for this other mobster until that guy dies. There's nothing we can do. And then that guy dies. And uh, Travolta. 
basically now realizes he's in a position there's not much he can do except be a bitch now that this guy technically is his superior, gets sent out to L.A. to try and track down a guy who who uh, owed a bunch of money. It looks like he may have faked his own death and ran off with it. Um, he goes out there and without over-explaining this relatively complex series of events, yeah. ends up... Uh, Doing a favor for someone else that puts him in touch with Gene Hackman, who plays Harry Zim, who is a, a movie producer of schlock films. There's a script that is called Mr. Lovejoy that's from a, a dead guy that he used to work with him. But he's like, I really want the rights to this thing, because, but it's going to cost me a bunch of money from his widow. And it's the best thing I've ever read. And Travolta, who's obsessed with film, I love the fact how much Chili Palmer loves movies. There's a mm. scene where he's going to see The Third Man, uh, not The Third Man, uh, Touch of Evil yeah. in the movie theater, and he's just quoting along with it at the end, and then turns around to everyone when it ends, is like smiling, like, yeah, taps the guy on the shoulder, goes, awesome, huh? I like, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> that. He loves movies that much. You get why he's like, I don't want to be a mobster anymore. I want to be working in film. And he gets a connection to Renee Russo, who was kind of a minor scream queen, but ends up sort of in on this whole thing. Danny DeVito, who is the titular shorty of the Get Shorty, who is a actor who apparently was based very specifically and without apology on uh, Barry Sonnefeld, director's experiences with Danny DeVito, with uh, 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 Dustin Hoffman. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> which is kind of funny. But there's a huge list of great people in here. Delroy Lindo, James Gandolfini, John Grease, uh, Miguel Sandoval. Bette Mittler, this is a movie that has so many fun twists and turns and a great score, and I was so grateful to see finally someone, because there's never really been a great release of this thing. Mm -hmm. um, and this Blu-ray review that they put out actually does have a bunch of brand new special features on it. But first, what did you? What, what are your opinions on this? In my revisit, uh, I saw this theatrically when it came out probably a couple times, and I've owned it on DVD. Um, in this particular revisit, I I don't think that it ever clicked with me. I mean, I got it, but there was something about this revisit. I don't ever think it clicked with me before how much of a how much of a dipshit Gene Hackman's character is. Oh, totally. Because you're so used to Gene Hackman carrying this weight and this gravitas and his roles, and Zim's a Zim's a freaking moron. Yeah, who is, and like Hackman that, said was based on an actual agent. That, that didn't come said. across previously until this viewing, and I went, he's. He's kind of he's kind of dumb, yeah. like, and you just you're not used to seeing Gene Hackman play somebody who doesn't have their stuff together, uh, you know, who's kind of a loser, and <laughs> and yeah, and so this time this rewatch, I definitely focused more on uh, on Hackman, and gosh, I miss Hackman, and I miss that weird window of the late '90s where Delroy Linda was like in every movie for for like a stretch of five years. It felt like. Delroy Lindo was just in everything. He's that guy who is is indeed really cool, but the problem is when Chili Palmer shows up, he might as well be the biggest nerd in the world compared to trying to put his dick up next to, to Chili Palmer's. Yeah. You're just like, he's trying to out-cool Chili Palmer, and you just can't do it. Well, because what it is, in, in, the, in the color of the movie, it is Delroy Lindo is, is, is positioned as sort of L.A., organized crime which can't hold a candle to the east coast guys mm -hmm. and so he's completely outclassed once the east coast guys start rolling in the guys coming in from florida which are all from further up the coast uh, once they start rolling into la yeah he's just completely outclassed he he 
he was, I, it wasn't that he was a pretender, but his level of crimes, I mean, what he like runs a limo company, like does shady crap with a limo company. Like it's not even the same level as to what was going on with, uh, with, uh, uh, Car- Carbone, what's uh, uh De Bones, De yeah. Bones, yeah, and uh, and Momo and those guys. So, I, I one of the things that really makes me laugh the more I hear about this is that the film is already meta, being kind of about mm-hmm. Hollywood film, but the fact that Elmore Leonard, all right, there's a story in the thing where Mr. Lovejoy, which Travolta never actually reads in the movie, but is trying to sell it to people anyway, it, he ends up selling it as his own story of his experiences. Which, ironically, Chili Palmer is a real guy that Elmore Leonard knew, and the book is based on stories that he told him about his own crime career. Oh, wow. And the real Chili Palmer does, in fact, appear in this movie at one point, which is funny. In a conspicuous role? Like uh, something you're able like, to point out, or no? I can't remember. I, I did. It's like one. Of, it's just a walk-on cameo, but he, but he is in it. Um, I never saw Be Cool. It's not good. I've it's heard a that. Sequel. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's one of those. The, even the book. I tried reading the book, hoping it would be better. It was like, I get what you're after. Just something was like lightning in a bottle about Get Shorty. But the book is terrific as well for this. But for the extra features, there's a commentary from Barry Sonnefeld, which is from the original Laserdisc release. Here, there's Look at Me, which, by the way, speaking about what a dork Gene Hackman is, the first mm-hmm. time he tries to do Chili Palmer's Look at Me line, you just cringe. Yeah. Like, oh, you so don't have. That. Well, I love the scene. My, my, that brings up like possibly my favorite scene in the whole movie is when Palmer tells him, like, "Here's what I want you to do: don't say who I am, stand behind these guys, don't mention the script." And he lays it out, and Hackman's like, okay. And the guys come upstairs, and he immediately, one after the other, breaks every single rule that Chili Palmer tells him to do. Yes, he does. Uh, but this is, uh, look at me, 27 minutes behind the scene, making up featurette that talks about the development and production of it. It's featuring pretty much everyone, all talking about Elmore as a novelist and how they came to the film. Wise Guys and Dolls is a 20-minute companion piece to Look at Me, which is about the characters and the actors who portray them. Uh, Going Again is a five-minute feature uh, with Barry Sonnefeld and Danny DeVito talking about the directing. Um, DeVito, who was also a director at this point, had made several films. I believe, what was it, War of the Roses? War of the Roses, he'd done. Yeah. And uh, Throw Mama from the Train, I believe, yeah. was him. Uh, and then Get Shorty Party Reel is a six-minute reel, which is basically just the time before the clapper hit and the time after the clapper hit, specifically, which is an interesting way to do a gag reel. Just sort of prepping for the scene and the response immediately afterwards. Page to Screen, Get Shorty is a 29-minute episode of the series of Page to Screen on Bravo, hosted by Peter Gallagher, which talks about the whole making of yada yada. Um, vignettes are six vignettes, about six minutes total, uh, that feature Barry Sonnefeld and Danny, DeVito, Danny DeVito talking about the directing. And the real standout here is the graveyard scene, something I've always wanted to track down and never, never seen, which is a very famous, uh, deleted scene from this movie that everyone involved was always like, this is the funniest scene in this whole movie that they had to cut because ultimately it just didn't have any place in it. It was like, this just kind of feels like an aside that wasn't there, which is where they go to a set. Like Chili Palmer goes to a set of a currently filming uh, Harry Zim film uh, that has, oh, good Lord, what is his name? Um, Oh, shit. Now I'm blanking on the name of the actor. Oh, this is going to kill me. I can't remember. Like very famous comedian. Damn it. I can't remember. Oh God. Well, look it up. It's on there. But, uh, who is, who's playing the very kind of arrogant director who, who, uh, Zim puts in his place. But like, it's just a total cornball, like, like screamer film. And, uh, 
it is a very funny scene, and it has a little bit about the scene and a little bit, like, it actually shows a scene, and then there's about three or four minutes of just them talking about the why it was not included and everything. But yeah, this is gold. Um, do you have it? Uh, I will in a second. Oh, uh, Ben Stiller. Oh, Ben Stiller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ben Stiller play, hey, which was, by the way, I think it may have been his first on-screen appearance in a movie. No. In a movie, I think it was. Mm-hmm. This was 1995. Yeah, I not, don't know. think so. I I'd thought, be surprised. I thought they said in the thing it was, but maybe, maybe not. Maybe. I mean, I don't know. I, I feel, I mean, he'd been working. Like you talked about SNL with Billy Crystal. He was he was a writer on SNL and would pop up uh, well, in SNL stuff in the late 80s. I mean, uh, right, theatrically. But I'm trying to think. He, I would have thought he would have been in a film before that. I don't know, though. I, I can't answer so. that definitively. Either way, it's a, it's a funny scene. And even Stiller... It, it, in, in the thing. It's like, I was so sad this wasn't in here, but I totally got why it wasn't. On, uh, on Blu-ray, you can see Travolta's um, uh, like hair, the little wig net uh, through the through the magic of, of HD Blu-ray. Right. Um, and, yeah. I mean, this was actually, although not released for 4K players, has been remastered in 4K. Oh, okay. So it says it's the best copy that exists. My teeniest, tiniest little thing also from watching it this time. Man, I wish that the fake movie titles were better for the Zim stuff. Yeah? It's just like... Yeah, it's like, oh, the slime creature, and like, oh, you saw me in Invasion of the Star Zombies, or whatever. It's like, they're very, for, for Elmore Leonard being such a great writer, I sure wish those titles sounded more like real movies. <laughs> <laughs> they do kind of sound like the title of old Roger Corman films. No? Yeah. I mean, there's not, like, stuff that's super evocative. The gr- grotesque being a franchise, I was like, okay, that sounds like a real movie, but I don't think the slime creature... The slime creature, I don't know. It sounded like something that would have been made in, like, the 50s. Future title of a Donald Trump biography. Um, And then we, moving on to anime, we have a film that actually I wasn't even going to hand off to you, and you saw it in the stack, and you went, can we, can I please review this? Which is the 2001 Japanese sci-fi anime uh, movie Metropolis, which is loosely based on, and and apparently very loosely based on the, um, the manga that came out in 1949 by Osamu Tezuka, which was itself very loosely inspired by the 1927 well, silent film of the same. Apparently, the, the 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 anecdote that I've heard about the the story behind this was that uh, he had a friend who saw Metropolis, the silent film, and then came back and told Tezuka like all about it, uh, just laid out the plot. No, oh, this happens, and oh, it's so great, and it stayed with him. And he remade it without actually having ever seen it. Fair enough. Um, Just based on what the guy told him about it? That's funny. Well, you, I know, are a fan of this film. I kind of fall in the eh. So I'd rather hear you describe the plot of this thing. Oh, um, it takes place in a fantasy future where uh, robots do all of our jobs for us. It's funny because I actually just finished Detroit on PS4, which, which has the fun. same kind of storyline where it's like, oh, it's a future where, you know, robots are sort of our, our working slaves. Um, there's a detective who rolls into uh, the city looking for a fugitive scientist who has been enlisted by a political mover, mover and shaker to create a near human version of his uh, daughter, um, that through weird anime convoluted nonsense, they're going to hook up to a giant, 
uh, supercomputer and yeah. take control of the world. Um, <laughs> that's that's the stuff where this, this started to lose me. But yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, and there's like, you know, there's, there's robot uprisings and there's jazz music and uh, a, a lot of very early use of CG incorporated into traditional hand-drawn animation. And a, really a look and feel that is, to me, so distinct. Um, there's almost a... Um, if you're not familiar with with his particular, uh, hold on. If you with the, I want to make sure I get the name right who, who of. Are you uh, of the director? Oh, uh, Tezuka. Yeah, I wanted to make sure I had the name right. There, if you're not familiar with the, Tezuka's that's art, the original, right? Ma, that's the original manga yes. artist. Okay. If you're not familiar with his art style, um, it is a. It, he's got like a. It's not. I mean, it's. It is Japanese, but it has a roly poly kind of early American feel to it that kind of recalls to me like uh, Popeye cartoons and things like that. Well, yeah, he did Astro Boy, as a lot of people know. I I definitely felt like Astro Boy characters inside of a much more serious story, and I kept going, this is, like, anachronistic almost. Yeah, but I like that about it. I I love that... I, I had forgotten that I owned the soundtrack to this hmm. uh, when it came out. Like, I went out and sought out the soundtrack and bought the soundtrack. And so the music was coming on, and I was like, oh, yeah, I used to actually listen to this. I think the Ray Charles needle drop in the finale is one of my all-time favorite, that's, like, needle drop moments in that, any movie. That's the best sequence of this whole film. Yeah. For sure. Where suddenly you get to hear the whole Ray Charles song and all the stuff that's this, this yeah, it hit, sequence. And, yeah. yeah it's really it hits cool. this big climactic moment and it basically goes silent and I Can't Stop Loving You starts and it's, oh my God, it's so good. Um, yeah. And I'm not the biggest, like, I'm not a huge anime guy. I like some stuff and I don't like some stuff. I'm not necessarily like, and I don't seek it out. That's, I think, what yeah. makes me not define myself as a fan is I don't keep my ear to the ground about what's good in anime. It just, it, but this this was one where I went saw it theatrically. I liked it. I, it had been years since I'd seen it. And revisiting it, I was reminded how much I like it. And it does get a little, it does get loopy, and it does have those weird holes that are, that to me are indicative of a lot of anime where it's like, I'm not even sure how to explain what the plan was to be like, Hey, will you bring my daughter back to life so that I can hook her up to a modern day tower of Babel and control the atmosphere? A lot of that where I'm like, wait, what? Like a lot of baffling things that I feel like maybe something is lost in the translation or something. Well, yeah. Cause in the, this is based on a, you know, based on a comic, based on a, second-hand telling of a movie. Yeah. So in the comic, there's, like, multiple volumes, so there's much more breath to tell the story. Um, and I've never read the actual, the original comics. Um, no, me neither. But and there's no denying this is a beautiful-looking film, mm-hmm. beautiful-sounding film. It's got a lot of neat ideas. Even this is, like, I mean, the original manga is just, like, the, the original creator said, I saw the image of the robot being hooked into the machine, and that's the only part from the original Metropolis that's actually in the original graphic novel. Yeah. This creator was like, I want to bring a lot more of that into it. So there's things like that, th- those silent movie shots where it does a screen change by the screen turning into a circle and stopping for a second and then mm-hmm. like blacking out into a circle and then blacking all the way out, which is a very silent movie move. Lots of things from the original film and imagery that have been integrated, but it's not really based on that story either. <laughs> no, it, it does touch on... It does touch on the separation between classes um, in regards to the city sort of keeps building upon itself. And, you know, 
the the things that run the city being at the very bottom and then up from that being poor people and up from that like a middle class and up from that being like a higher class. So it, it borrows some of the like underground social structure from the original silent movie. Um, and but it doesn't do the there's not the workforce thing in the same way because in this the workforce are robots. Yeah. And yeah, the robots want to be liberated, but there's a huge difference to me in the silent film with the workforce being human powered and they want to be liberated because they don't get to enjoy the fruits of their own labor. That is, that's a much more powerful message than Metropolis is kind of mealy. Uh, well, the robots are tired of working for us and it's like, okay, like that's <laughs> all right. That that's not as powerful as like, Oh, I'm, I'm in a hamster wheel so I can power your castle, and that sucks for me. You know? Well, this is uh, Mill Creek, who lately has moved from just nothing but bare-bones releases to trying to do something a little extra. Mm -hmm. Although still, certainly, sorry, I have keep moving the cat off of John's lap because he wants to kiss the microphone. Um, uh, has moved from just bare-bones releases to trying to do a little extra. And this is a Steelbook release and a pretty one mm -hmm. at that. Uh, it, it is indeed, I believe this is the first Blu-ray release uh, previously um, uh, with a DVD release in the film. And, and it does look good, but all the supplements are just ported over because the DVD is basically just the original DVD that has all those yeah. supplements on it, which are a making of uh, interviews with the filmmakers, animation comparisons, uh, concept art, things like that. But it, it, this is the best existing version of this with, like I said, a very attractive case for it. So overall, if this is your thing, and I'm with you in the terms of I don't really seek out most anime. I've really got to be talked into sitting down with some mm. stuff that isn't already on my radar. Like if someone says the magical words, it's like Studio Ghibli or it is Studio Ghibli. I'm like, I'll watch it. Yeah. If it's anything else, I'm like, you better really have a, a, a talk me into it period going on of like why it's good. Or I see it at Fantastic Fest. I'm weirdly one of the films I always go back to, and it's not my type of thing at all for anime is Redline. Yeah. Which they played at Fantastic Fest. That movie is fucking fun as shit. It's so insane. Mm -hmm. uh, not my sort of thing normally, but I really enjoyed it. Anyway, let's move on to our next title, which is another cartoon uh, film, which is. Okay, apparently it was always originally conceived of as a film, but like DC wanted to test the waters of the C or uh, CW wanted to test the waters of their CW seed thing and said, can you make shortened versions of this into episodes? We can kind of see what people think. I think they were a little nervous about the very adult content of Constantine, Constantine City of Demons. Um, and I did watch the all five of the original episodes when it came out in CW seed and I was like, I like this. It feels stuttery. And we found out why, because they basically deleted a good 20, 25 minutes of stuff from even those first five episodes that were very pretty important story exposition and things in between. I was like, oh, why did you ever do that at all? Well, now they put out the whole thing on Blu-ray um, uh, from, of course, Greg Berlanti, who seems to be the guy that DC trusts to do absolutely everything. But to be fair, with overall pretty good results. You know, mixed results, but overall pretty good. Constantine, John Constantine may be my single favorite DC character of all time. Sorry, Batman fans. Um, I, I Ever since he was introduced way back in the day in Swamp Thing, I was like, who is that guy? And he lately, through the CW and through him first getting his own season of a show, which sadly got canceled with Matt Ryan. I think yeah. everybody went, say what you will about the show, Matt Ryan is the definitive John Constantine. And then him appearing on, I believe, Arrow initially, and then on later on Legends of Tomorrow. Did you finish the first season of Constantine? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah, I actually have the Blu-ray of it even. I, 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 I thought the first episode was very Doctor Who. Uh, I wish it was a little more like Fox's Exorcist show. It's one of those shows that gets a lot better as it goes along. Cool. Yeah. Uh, by the end, I was totally like, wow, this is great. I can't wait for the next season. Oops. Um, but everybody wanted Matt Ryan back. So like, he's even a full-timer on uh, the season on Legend of Tomorrow. And in fact, before this, this is in continuity with the DC Animated Universe Justice League Dark with his appearance on there with him once again voicing the character. Here, uh, he is indeed a demon hunter and his best friend, Chaz, Chaz Chandler, who is the only one of his friends who, as near as I can tell, through the enti- even through the comic books, has not died <laughs> horribly, because that's what even John's always like. Don't be friends with me. My friends die. Chaz, somehow kind of a big, dumb thug guy, has pushed through and survived. His daughter has a mystical illness, which turns out to be she's being, her soul is being held by a demon who turns out the demon knew exactly what he was doing and just wanted John Constantine to come to him so he can get him to do a task for him, which is to essentially they're trying to set up. He wants to set up a sort of like hell on earth, a, uh, or in terms of a sort of like, I don't know. A, a, what's the word? A mafia of demons. Yeah. Um, but there's other competing demon, demons showing up trying to do the same thing, and he wants them to take out the competition. And I'll be honest, I, I got the feeling reading from what you were saying on this on Facebook, you weren't really caring for it, but I thought this is one of my favorite DC Animated Universe films. I, I don't think that I like these anymore in general, because I feel like there have been a lot of them that have been like, oh, this one's pretty good, or this one's one of the best ones in a while. And every time I do one, I'm like, I, it's such, it's so difficult for me to engage with it. And I'm a comic book guy. Like, yeah, you totally are. Um, That's why that surprises me to hear you say that. I think it's because of how, to me, they're directed. There's a flatness to the way they're directed. The characters are almost like they don't express emotion on their faces a lot of times. Um, it there's a there's a style to these that does not click with me. There is a house um, style yeah. to these that uh, you keep wishing, uh, even when you're like, this is still better than a lot of what anybody else is doing for this type of superhero stuff. It feels like if y'all just spent a little bit more money, yeah. Like, and I agree with you. The facial expressions are the issue. Backgrounds yeah. are great. Yeah, and voice acting is typically above the board. Yeah. Um. I also find that most of their screenplays um, don't have a lot of momentum. They don't, they feel weirdly, they kind of hum along at like one level without any like rising action, like any, like the structure of like, okay, opening exposition, the rising action, climax, you know, resolution. It's like everything kind of feels the same from beginning to end. Um, and so it's been hard for me to to really to really walk away liking one. And like there've been so many that I've wanted to give a shot. I mean Justice League Dark was one where I was like kind of pumped for it. Honestly, the sixties one with the Adam the Adam West and Burt Ward one was another one where I was like, Okay, this one should this one should hook me and I, it didn't. I really liked the first one. I didn't care for the second one. Um Lansdale wrote Son of Batman. Joe Lansdale yeah. wrote Son of Batman. And I thought that one would be I one. Liked I like that one too. And I'm just like, they don't. Not as good as Under the, the Red Hood, which was one of the best. There's just a disconnect. And like, I can think back. I think the last one that I liked was the one, I want to say that it was titled Superman Batman Apocalypse, which is one about Supergirl, um, where they find the new Supergirl 
And, I don't remember. Yeah, and like, and Superman is like, oh, she's definitely my cousin. She's definitely from Krypton. Batman's like, I don't know. And then the Furies from Apocalypse like recruit her. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's the last one that I watched that I liked pretty good. I, I liked the Green Lantern um, anthology one pretty good. Really? You see, we definitely like different ones because so. I, I don't have a problem with either one of those. There's only a few that I outright go, this is terrible. Yeah. Like, generally, I like the, the series of, of animated films quite a bit, and I feel like lately they've been kind of knocking them out of the park. I love Justice League Dark. I love this one. I loved uh, uh, that last Suicide Squad one they did that was supposed to be like a like a, like the movie Grindhouse kind yeah. of, with, but with Suicide Squad. I was like, I really like that stuff. I agree. They all look too much the oh, same. The Harley Quinn one was that one was really bad. That's the worst one I've seen. Which one? The Batman Harley Quinn. Oh, I didn't mind that one. Oh god! I mean, I, that, that, like fart that, jokes. That, and that felt bad like it was. In, that and, felt like it was in. The, and I get why a lot of people felt the same way you did about that because there was a lot of either people loved it or they despised it. I liked it because I kind of looked at it as like. It was like a parody of Batman the Animated Series, and they were specifically going after yeah. that. Like, this is not in continuity with any of the others, and it would kind of be nice if someone came on at the beginning of these and said, because they were always going, this is continuity with this one, but not with this one. It'd be nice if someone would come on and go, this is where this falls in the sense of being connected to any of the others, or if it is at all, because it's always a little, you've got to read between the lines yeah. and figure out if it's even considered to be in the same universe as the others. That one was indeed considered to be a very standalone sort of Elseworlds-y type thing, like a, a straight-up comedy. I, I thought it was funny. The fart jokes went a little far, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I will say, I thought this actually got Constantine better than any other film's translation of Constantine I've seen so far. I don't know that I disagree with that. I, I just didn't... It just didn't click with me. It, and, and again, I think it has to do with the... To me, it has to do with pacing and the rhythms of stuff... Where the way stories engage with me, it just didn't, it never got its hooks in me. And I felt really passive and, and and kind of oddly bored while I watched it. Hmm. Um, but I did watch the special features on this. Oh, yeah. I was waiting for this. I read you (laughs) commenting about this online. I was like, I heard the same shit you did and went, Oh my God, are you kidding me? They don't mention Alan Moore. They don't mention the creation of the character. Uh, They talk a lot. Who created him first in Swamp Thing. And they talk a lot about um, magic and the occult and whether or not the magic and occult portrayed in his comics is accurate is what they talk about more than anything else. Um, (laughs) Which is like. <laughs> Which is the most arbitrary discussion yes. you could possibly have, and the only person who might even vaguely want their opinion on on that would be Alan Moore, yeah. uh, <laughs> who and of course won't show up for the adaptation of anything he's ever. That's done. true. And then but, David Goyer uh, yeah. says the quote that um, Constantine is uniquely American, I'm, I'm just, which I found. Like offensive, I, I, it, was, it, is. it was comic book blasphemy. There's nothing about John Constantine that is uniquely American. It feels like so nothing. uniquely British in regards to like that early '80s coming, like growing out of the punk era and being like, "Oh, I've got responsibilities." Honestly, what are you talking felt about? Like, like when Tim Burton said. Oh yeah, I did read a Batman comic book. What was it? Oh yeah, I read uh, I read that Killing Joke thing. Before I did this, but you know, I mean, come on, it's Batman, whatever. And you're like, fuck you. (laughs) You're in charge of a project and you're like, and Goyer clearly not having read anything that came out since 
Vertigo's John Constantine got absorbed into the bigger DC universe and became more of a cartoon. Yeah. Like, you're like, <laughs> wow, dude. <laughs> Nothing, there's no, there's no Constantine moment lower to me than, and I love He-Man. Uh-huh. There's no Constantine moment lower than him showing up to He-Man and Tila and going, you've got to help me find Skeletor. And I was like, what, what am I looking at? Like, what is this? Then the big DC versus Masters of the Universe thing. I'm just like, what a, what a, what an <laughs> offensive use of Constantine. No, but that, that yeah. special feature in particular was by a, it was by the people who made the film and it revealed a, an unusually, um, I felt like, wrong-headed view of the character in a way i was a little amazed that the that the movie that his the fidelity of the character survived as much as it did in the movie based on the things that they say in the special features where i'm like you guys just think straight up that he's dr strange Me too. i mean he definitely I, and maybe a lot of that was brought in by matt ryan who famously has like gone all in like yeah. he's like you know when a character comes along you go, if you don't hold on to this with both fingers, then you're going to lose it because everyone thinks you should do it. Yeah. And this is a career. This is a thing you can make your career off of. Like, even if you don't get any more roles after a certain point, you can make a living going to cons. It'll be real interesting to see if he holds um, on to it when uh, when uh, DC's Swamp Thing series starts next year. And no word yet whether or not they're going to cast him in it. I they know. have said that Swamp Thing is not going to be connected to the other DC streaming shows. But that doesn't well, that mean may... they might not try and like reach out and say, like, why not get Matt Ryan? I mean, fuck, it could be an Elseworlds. Who knows? No reason it can't be the same actor. Yeah. You know? I mean, come on. That's that guy. The other, obviously, other people have tried. I'm looking at you, Keanu Reeves. Bad call. But um, decent movie, terrible casting. <laughs> um, Ryan is it. And I, I, I get the feeling like he – I mean, I've read him saying, oh, I've read every comic book with him like six times. I'm like all about this character. So maybe a lot of that was him bringing in going like, no, you don't work like that. It's not Constantine. But they, I think for this, it's like Goyer only was co-creator too. Uh, and I, maybe he just was in charge of the L.A. bits. I don't know. There's also a WonderCon panel uh, for 20 minutes here with uh, Matt Ryan, screenwriter J.M. DeMathis, and uh, uh, Peter Garardi from Blue Ribbon Content, which is Warner's division that take care, that does all the digital series, uh, that was followed by the premiere of those first five episodes. All right. Well, let's move on to our next one, which is a movie you didn't see, and I really want you to see this if you've never seen it. No, this is not the – okay. I'll let this you is, talk about it, and then, I'll, and then I'll find out myself. Right, this is a 1990 sci-fi horror film called Spontaneous Combustion, which by definition is a film that makes me not want to see it because you're like, it's just a little too on the nose, right? But then I'm like, whoa, this is by Toby Hooper, the same guy who who did a, a ton of movies that I love, even movies that are not considered generally great. I love anyway, like Life Force. Mm-hmm. I love Life Force so much, John. Yeah. I can't even tell you how much, how many times I've watched that movie. It's wacko. I, I love get, the first hour. I get that it's totally fucking insane, but I, and doesn't make a lot of sense, and it's not a very well written movie, but I love everything about it. It's one of those movies like Zardoz. I know it's bad. I don't care. Fuck you. I like it. <laughs> um, Toby Hooper is a guy I would watch anything by, even prepared for it being bad. And this is bad. It's just bad in a way that's also very watchable and not bad. I don't know. It is bad. It's all right. So first off, Brad Dorff, maybe the first time, is this the only time in his career that he's playing a character that isn't the protagonist? Like a good guy protagonist? Lead? Yeah. 
a, uh, like he's supposed to be know. a handsome protagonist, good guy. You're like Brad Dorf. <laughs> I guess. I mean, not the protagonist, but at least he's not a villain in Deadwood. Yeah. Or well, uh, no, person. I mean he's played non-villains, but yeah, I don't. But he's think... always an insane guy, kind of. Right, and a, and a, or a side character. Like I don't think. Again, I don't think he's. I can't name anything where he's the. He's the male lead where he's not. <laughs> Chucky. <laughs> the idea is is that his parents were part of this atom, atomic bomb experiment where they were building like an underground shelter to prove that it would have no negative effect on people who were in it, and which seems like wow, someone they legally got this young couple to to do that. Turns out she was pregnant. She gave birth immediately after giving birth. She caught on fire, spontaneous human combustion. It happens. Uh, and then he did too. The dad did too. And they're like, wow, that's weird. But the baby was passed on, and the Government were keeping tabs on him moved very quickly to grown up Brad Dorf in modern day, which is to say the eighties. And uh, he's trying to live a normal life, and weird shit is happening. And there's stories about people spontaneously combusting. And we see that he's, although really trying hard to be the super nice guy, and generally is nice. Everyone around him is kind of a dick. I mean, I think he's in L.A., so big shocker there. Um, and when he loses his temper on people, usually after he leaves, they catch on fire. Like, he's not doing it on purpose. And it's him kind of discovering, oh, fuck, this is happening. I've got to be super careful uh, and trying to figure out where it came from and finding out that all these people in his life, including his girlfriend, were in on this and realized that they were just there to make sure that something exactly like what's happening wasn't going to happen. or And if it was, to take care of the problem. And this is super silly. And it's got really bad special effects. And at the same time, it's really fun and it moves super quickly and it goes to so many crazy fucked up places. I'm like, if you, if you're one of those people who loves like trashy, but great, like eighties and nineties horror films, this is one you kind of want to put on your radar to check out. It is trashy for sure. I, I get that. What was it? Spin magazine said no one makes bad movies as deliriously entertaining as Toby Hooper, whose career continues its spectacular downward slide with some spontaneous combustion, um, which is sadly accurate. But even so, gave it an overall favor- favorable review. Yeah, it's pretty funny to me. I got it confused with uh, <laughs> around the same era, maybe even the same year. There's a movie called Wilder Napalm. That has, I think, Dennis Quaid and maybe Deborah Winger. Huh. That's about, but I've it's a comedy. It's a comedy about spontaneous combustion. <laughs> um, it's this about a love is. triangle where one of the people in the love triangle can cause people to burst into flames. Oh, wow. And so I get the title. When I hear spontaneous combustion, it reminds me of the other movie. And I have to, I had to sort it out earlier and, and go, oh, wait, that's not that. It's Wilder Napalm. This is released by a distribution company I've had no familiarity with before, and I originally was almost offended by when their their logo is over the opening credits. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Which I was like, oh, what are you doing? Like, where it's like a logo in the left-hand corner. I'm like, yeah, get like that watermark. shit out of there. Uh, cheesy flicks, which I'm like, that is not... A complimentary something uh, something weird used to do that to their DVD releases yeah. or the something weird and logo. Thankfully, but- somebody finally pointed out to them, stop doing that. Yeah, shit. yeah, and it's not good. And th- I mean, this isn't a great fix up of it. It was better than any other previous exi- existing release, I suppose. Although strangely, this has come out on DVD twice 
or no, not even just DVD. This has been out on Blu-ray twice before this. Um, Code Red being one of the companies who did it, and then a region-free German Blu-ray. This is generally considered to be a little bit better than the previous ones, but, but, but it depends on your mileage may vary. There's not much here for special features, uh, except for trailers, but hey. Real talk. Real talk. Real talk. If I had, if I hadn't seen Firestarter or Spontaneous Combustion, which one would you tell me to watch? Well, I'll tell you right now, this is much less boring than Firestarter. All right. Yeah. But it's much better acted with a higher, <laughs> it's, it's, it's much worse acted and much lower production value than Firestarter. Okay. But Firestarter <laughs> is, a, is not a bad looking film. It's just so fucking dull. Yeah. As opposed to the novel, which is actually terrific. It, it, back in the day, the novel was actually one of my favorite Stephen King books. Um, and I was so disappointed with the film. I still am. I just rewatched it recently and went, this is so dull. Yeah. Uh, this is not dull. But it's dumb. <laughs> anyway, let's move on to a film that I had never actually seen before. Neither this. had I. I had seen every single version <laughs> of this film except the original version of the film, which is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I had just never gotten around to the original 1956 adaptation uh, of the, uh, <clears throat> what was it, a short story, I believe? I cannot remember. Uh, but, of course, there's, what, seven and that's not even counting films that are just stealing from it. Oh, oh yeah. TV There's a lot of episodes. things that have borrowed from it. Uh, but a lot of adaptations. The one I've seen the most was the 70s one with Donald Sutherland, which yeah. I think is fantastic. But I didn't have the context of having seen this one, which I'll tell you is goddamn really good. Mm. Like surprisingly good. I did not expect this to be as well shot, as well acted, as really cool special effects and genuinely creepy as it actually is. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, come on, you guys, you got to know what the invasion of the body snatch is about. Like, small town, extraterrestrial invasions coming in, and nobody believes the people at first. They're saying, oh, I've been, like, there's my exact double. That Something's wrong with them. They're not acting like themselves. Oh, it's not them. They've been replaced by a double. Well, of course you're crazy. But they have been, because the aliens which I guess somehow are vegetables are uh, planting like giant green pea pods and creating clones of people and then killing the originals to take their place, which is depending on who you listen to either an allegory for McCarthyism or communism, which even the original director is like, Oh, has <laughs> been very kind of like, you know, I mean, I think for me personally, it was McCarthyism, but I can see why people might would take it as communism, too. I mean, there was certainly some talk of that. It's like, dude, have an answer. You can watch it through a liberal or conservative lens and come up with a either way. It's a pretty goddamn good film about paranoia. Mm -hmm. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have anything. I don't have anything necessarily to add to that. Uh, it's a classic. It's a deserved classic. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, who some might only know from are you HF station from, uh, from the weird Al Yankovic classic oh, UHF and twilight zone. He was yeah. the dad in yeah. the sequence with the kid who had all the psychic. Powers. Well, he has the cameo in the seventies one where he runs up to the car. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it is, it's good. Um, <laughs> it's good. Are you in trouble talking about this? You're like, I love I this film. I have no idea what to say about it. I, I, I you said everything. I think wow. it's, it's Sorry. paranoid. Um, it's, it's interesting. The, the effects are cool. Um, it's cool to see, um, oh gosh, uh, actor, 
Yeah, um, Morticia Can, Adams. Oh, right. Uh, Carolyn Jones. Yeah. Uh, it's cool to see her in a role. Unrecognizable. Yeah. So. Um, you know, she's so iconic as as the matriarch of the Adams family to see her, you know, play someone that's normal is, you know, you have uh, some cognitive dissonance there. But, yeah, it's really cool. Um, yeah, it's a great movie. I, I don't know what else to say. I, and I did watch the special features. Um, you see a lot of film Which, nerds. There's a lot. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about the movie from a lot of faces you'll recognize, including Joe Dante and John Landis and just a ton of faces. Oh, I did forget to mention real quick. John Landis has a cameo in Spontaneous Combustion. Oh, yeah. Which is the best. John Landis cameos in a lot of shit, but it's his best cameo ever where he, he literally explodes into flame with shooting flame out of his mouth and freaking out <laughs> as a radio station. Well, for film it. nerds, that's the thing with this movie, too, is it's such a it's a touchstone for Dante, Joe Dante in particular, who has managed to work Kevin McCarthy into a lot of his movies lines of dialogue from this have shown up in his movies. So this is one of those movies that he's so in love with that it, it has filtered itself through every single oh, yeah. one of the movies. He's and Dante made. is indeed very fetishy about the films yeah. that he loves. This is probably yeah. one of the only films he loves that doesn't have an ape in it. Um, but <laughs> a lot of directors who were big directors for, all of us who love modern day horror, who got their film shit started in the seventies, this was one of their biggest influences. My only wish for this is that I hadn't seen it last. There's been so many copies and copies of copies that it, that on if I'm being completely honest with myself, some of the power of the film was lost. Versus, if I had never seen a version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, this probably would have hit me like a ton of bricks. I think I feel like. I was surprised because I remember when I finally saw Howard Hawks, the thing from outer space, I was like, eh, I mean, I love Hawks, but yeah. it's just okay. It's not that scary. Despite what the other John Carpenter might feel about it. Yeah. This is still genuinely scary. I was, I was expecting it to be like, okay, well, we'll watch this for more curiosity value than anything else. I'm sure the seventies version is head and tails above it. And I'm not sure that I can say that it is. I was genuinely surprised how well made of a film and how still frightening this movie is for me. Yeah. Um, and you're right. There is a ton of bonus features on this thing. Olive Signature has put out the definitive version of this film to own. Also, to your to that point, Olive is apparently – I read an article about them having trouble producing – copies to meet demand. Wow. Um, so this is something that I know you you offer the links for people to actually purchase mm -hmm. the films through. Um, this is one that um, that if you can get your hands on it, get your hands on it. It's a limited it's a limited, it's, run. A limited it's yeah. a limited run and they are yeah, they are already facing a situation in which they should have been more. And it's not so. just like they produced a bunch of new featurettes for this, but this also includes pretty much every vintage thing they could find to mm -hmm. shove on it. it. Is the completest this is the equivalent of a Criterion edition for Invasion yes. of the Body Snatchers. One hundred percent. Kinda shocked that uh, Criterion was never interested in doing this anyway. It's good enough of a film, I feel like it would have been worthy of that treatment. And this is one of the first of the Olive Signature releases that I feel like really lives up to like being as good as you'd hope it was be, would be yeah up to that level I, I would go through all these list of things but there's a lot it's like two commentaries i mean it's hours of bonus features on this thing i uh, and i honestly i watched probably watched about two hours maybe an hour and a half of uh of bonus features for i was like i don't have time to watch all this i got to move on to the next yeah. thing but i i'm like going to return to it it's an all-time classic next we have Speaking of a film I've always meant to see, 
and never got around to is Sam Peckinpah's Cross of Iron. Now, I'm a big Peckinpah fan. I feel like a lot of us film nerds are. And it was the only war movie he ever made, which seems weird for a guy who's iconically connected to hugely violent sequences, who also, surprisingly, was a pacifist in real life and a very big war protester. Um, always Peckinpah the man who was a complete alcoholic and a very difficult person to work with and yet was a very politically active guy and was very into peace in our time and, like, was – who all – whose films are also violent, he never made a film that was actually pro-violence. You watch his movies with the understanding that this guy is not trying to tell you this is a good thing. And yet they're all at the same time weirdly glorifying in it. Cross of Iron has got a lot of hugely violent, explosive war scenes, maybe a record-setting number at this point of hugely explosive war scenes. And it's also weird that it's from the viewpoint of the Germans during World War II – uh, most notably, uh, uh, James Coburn, who mm-hmm. I would watch do absolutely anything <laughs> as a, a German, what is he, a sergeant, I think? Oh, I don't know. I don't remember their ranks. But he's got, like, the aforementioned cross of iron, and there's a new commandant who's brought in here. Uh, what is his name? I'm blanking on his name right now. But uh, who's uh, who's kind of weaselly and he's like been clear I'm just here because I want to get this cross I want to go back and do it but he's a coward and he's no good and it's ultimately about Coburn just having with disdain for anyone in power who makes these commands and for the war in general and just trying to make sure as many of his own guys get through this. It kind of reminded me in that way of sort of a proto platoon Mm -hmm. and it's in that the movie's broader strokes are kind of a battle of wills between a a good leader and a bad leader mm-hmm. um, that, and, and in that way, in its best moments, it sort of, it sort of echoed or at platoon echoes the cross of iron. <laughs> um, I, and I also wondered while I watched it um, unrelated to plot or anything like that. If do you happen to know if it was filmed in that two strip, that old two strip Technicolor, if, even though it's in 77, there was something about the transfer of the Blu-ray where it was very, um, the colors in it were very rose and turquoise, much more than other 70s movie palettes. That's true. Um, a lot of that may have been the, the choices they made during the remaster, too, though. Yeah, I had wondered if it was if it was done in that sort of, you know, that, that style that was brought back with, with the aviator. It was shot by John Coquillion, who worked with Peckinpah and Straw Dogs, who also photographed Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, a movie I've still not seen and I keep meaning to watch. One of those on the list, right? Mm. <laughs> like so many movies. Uh yeah, I I don't know. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, just, I just was curious. I, did, I, I don't know myself. I, did, I mean, this is never going to fall on my favorite Sam Peckinpah film list, mm-hmm. but it's a fascinating and very like, like engaging film, nonetheless, with a huge cast of people that – a lot of which are be- probably much better known in Europe than they are here. But then we've got people like Maximilian Sch- uh, Schell, James Mason, David Warner. I mean, there's – it's an engaging cast there, and it it's not boring at all. It's a little sprawling. It's, it's a sprawling. little slop. It's not. No, the filmmaking's not sloppy, but the uh, one hundred and thirty three. It's a little. Uh, it's a little shaggy. Is the word I'm looking and for. It's worst. It's a little too in love with its war scenes, mm-hmm. and they go on for a little bit too long. Yeah. Where you're like, I'd like to get back to the part where characters are talking to each other, which sounds weird for me because I love big action scenes, but. 
the war scenes are like, they're very well filmed. They're super bloody. And there's a point you're like, this has been going on for like 10 minutes. Let's move this along. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can agree with that. Um, uh, but I, it's interesting that a, it was the third to last film he made before he died at the age of 59 of a heart attack. Um, and the last film that was really considered to be a really great Peckinpah film. I think Convoy was after this, which no one's going to defend as a really great Peckinpah film. And I can't remember what the last one was. was I think weird. that Iger sanction or oh, okay. something like that. I can't remember. One of those adaptations. Um, I, I do think it's really worth watching, although I think no one except people who already know they like World War II films is going to super get into this. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, if you're like, I love the the Wild Bunch. I don't think you're automatically going to like this film, but there's a lot of interesting moral questions and like juxtapositions going on here. And that idea of like, what's being a man, you know, in terms of a reflection of, uh, of the necessity of violence, some of which is very dated and some of which feels all too today. Did you find it? I found it relatively apolitical in regards to, uh, it's treatment of Nazis. Like I know Nazis are the protagonists, but because of that, they don't really get into, um, what, what Nazis are fighting for. No, they, they kind of get into get the fact, they get into the fact that Russians are their enemy because there's a whole subplot with a boy that they, they're sort of like, well, it's a boy. We don't want to kill him. Uh, and you know, other people thinking that, well, he's still, he's a Russian, he's still the enemy. Um, but I, but it seemed relatively apolitical in regards to its treatment of Nazis. There's no soul searching by anybody that's like, why are we doing it's this? It's like a dramatic Hogan's Heroes. Yeah. Where it's like, whereas if all the main characters that are the good guys here in it were like actually were Germans instead of Americans mm-hmm. who were like, we just don't, we don't even want to be here. This is fucked up, man. Our bosses suck. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the bosses are more mustache twirly, but never get into the specifics because he obviously wanted to make a movie that was just about war as hell. Yeah. You know, um, that even ends with a very depressing nihilistic Bertolt Brecht quote about just that. Um, it's less about what the war specifically was about and more that, wow, war is terrible. Um, Orson Welles saw this film who said that this was the best war film he had ever seen about the ordinary enlisted man since all quiet on the Western front. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's well worth seeing and you should check it out. The, um, the special features include a commentary by a film scholar. Uh, there's passion and poetry, Sam Peckinpah's war for 47 minutes, which is a 2011 documentary uh, about the film. There's a short featurette uh, called Kruger Kisses Kern, uh, which is about the complicated relationship actor Vadim Glona had with Peckinpah. Uh, there's letters from Vadim and Sam, which uh, is sort of an extension of about that and ma- bringing Maximilian Shell into the issues that was going on here. Once again, Peckinpah, not an easy guy to work for. Uh, there is... That there's another one that continues that on. There's uh, there's a lot of stuff involving the actors, including uh, a bit where um, David Warner and James Coburn were sort of touring with the film and reuniting at, at a re-release uh, around the world, including Japan. And then a bunch of sort of on-location, short, original vintage featurettes and a German trailer. So it's a, it's a decent little set for this film that previously had not had a solid release at all. A, a strangely ignored Peckinpah film that even at its time was considered to be a very good movie. But somehow everyone just kind of lost track of it. Yeah. 
Uh, next up, we have a film that I've never lost track of. I visit once every couple of years, which is 12 Monkeys. And this is the Arrow release of it, which is a much needed, really decent Blu-ray release of 12 Monkeys. I did, uh, I did something I've never done, uh, since I've been on this show, which is a, a side by side. What do you mean? I have the Universal Blu-ray, uh, huh? and I was able to, like, go back and forth between, uh, this new Arrow release and the Universal Blu-ray to, to see what I thought in regards to, like, picture quality, et cetera. Oh, wow. Okay. So. Well, I'm going to let you describe the plot of this film because it's complicated. The plot of this film is that, um, in the, f- in the future, there, w- there was a virus that wiped out humanity. Um, and caused people to basically have to live underground. And they, time travel is possible, but time can't be altered. So what they do is they take prisoners and kind of fling them through time. Um, this particular movie, Bruce Willis plays a prisoner who is being tasked with, um, getting a sample of the virus so that they can build an antivirus in the future. He's not allowed to change anything. He's not allowed to stop the distribution of the virus or anything like that. Um, just go get a sample of it and bring it back. And the only clue that they have is a mysterious organization known as the 12 Monkeys. Uh, they then proceed to fling Bruce Willis in and out of time where he meets a psychiatrist played by Madeline Stowe and a, uh, a crazy person played by Brad Pitt. A, a and, career-making move by Brad Pitt. Yeah, and, and Bruce Willis as well, his character begins to uh, sort of lose his mind too because the, the strains of being thrown in and out of time, that's the thing is he doesn't have any control over when he's dropped in. It's sort of like... It's, they almost treat time like somebody's lowering you down in a bucket and then pulling you back up. Right. What'd you um, see? How yeah. far down was it? Yeah. <laughs> Make a mark on the wall with chalk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so he's pulled in and out of time and begins to lose track of where he is, what's going on, um, and, 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 you know, struggle with his own sanity. This is an all-timer for me. Yeah. I love this movie. Agreed. And um, this is, lest we forget, uh, we mentioned that this is directed by Terry Gilliam. Yeah. Um, and this was during a period where... Gilliam was on the outs with the big companies who were a little disappointed with the performance of his, uh, before this, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which I personally think is fantastic. But but lost a ton of money. But I can see, well, and that's the studio's own fault. They did one of those things where the studio saw it, said, we don't get this, and largely just didn't release it. Didn't release it, yeah. Yeah, so that's like, that's kind of on you guys. But he was definitely kind of on the outs, and he was like, I've got to do something that's a little more commercial. Um, this and the Fisher King, I believe, were like right at one after another, which are both his sort of like more commercial films, both of which are among the best movies he's done. Mm-hmm. And both of which he admits are some of the movies he's proudest of. But even so, it's weird to think this is a Terry Gilliam commercial film. You showed this to someone who's like, this is one of this director's most commercial films. They're like, I don't know if I want to watch his other movies then, because this is really weird stuff. It's distinctively Gilliam that... Oh, it's interesting the way he's like, I have to stay under budget. So here's what I do. Everything is going to be reclaimed art in this movie. <laughs> like everything is like, just send people out the junkyards and bring a bunch of shit back and we'll put it together and have that distinctly Gilliam-esque look. Mm. Uh, and it really works. Uh, there's so much stuff here that is even more interesting when you watch the fantastic uh Feature-length documentary on this thing, The Hamster Factor and Other Tales of Twelve Monkeys. I watched the entirety of it. It's a great making-of documentary that's uh, – Gilliam both being an 
a very difficult person to work with sometimes, sometimes the best guy you could possibly want to work with, and most of the time just his own worst enemy. And him owning it, going like, yeah, I'm, I don't know why anyone ever wants to work with me again. I'm, I'm horrible. <laughs> like, I'm a very complicated, difficult person. I have problems. I get on set and I obsess over stuff I shouldn't and I slow things down. I'm like, I can't believe anybody ever gives me money to make a movie. I mean, he says the shit in the documentary and when you see it being made, you're like, how did they finish this film? Yeah. Um, but they did. And sometimes it's the magic of people like to complain about, oh, fucking producers. If they wouldn't get in the way, movies would be so much better. Well, that is often not the case. And 12 Monkeys is a great example. Sometimes it's about having someone setting deadlines and setting limits that makes art good. And, and this is a really great example of that. Um, there's a 23 minute, 50 second, the film exchange with Terry Gilliam, which is the interview with him. Uh, at the 1996 London Film Festival. There's 16 minutes from uh, Ian Christie, who wrote the terrific Gilliam on Gilliam, like de- I would argue the definitive book about Gilliam's works. Uh, yes, I've actually read and owned that one, for the record. Uh, there's an image gallery that's 40 minutes long. Holy shit, but presumably shorter if you're just clicking through it. And a commentary by Terry Gilliam and Charles Roven. This is a, an insert booklet. Um, it's This is great stuff. For the for the people who own the Universal one, the difference in the features is uh, the Film Exchange Q and A. Everything else is brought over from the Universal release, what including about the look? Uh, Hamster Factor. Uh, um, and there was a DVD release that I want to say had more features than either of the Blu-ray because I had a DVD version that had Legit on it, which is the am I saying that right or Legete? What know. the the short film? Oh, Legete. Yeah, yeah, that inspired. Twelve I don't Monkeys. know if it did or not. I have the original DVD release still. I've been meaning. I want to say that that had features on it that aren't this that su- haven't made the cut. Surprisingly, doesn't have that short film, which was was this was incredibly loosely based on. Yeah. Like Gilliam had not actually watched it when he made this movie. Yeah, he was like, "Tell me, describe to me what it's about." Okay, that's all I need to know. Yeah. Um. Uh. I don't. I, I didn't watch that till I feel like long after I saw this movie initially. So I'm thinking I, I don't remember if it was there. I assume it's a rights issue. Otherwise, Arrow certainly yeah. would have put it on here. I, I believe so as well. Um, in comparing the two, the first thing that was noticeable from a picture standpoint was that a, a lot of times on older films when they're brought over to video, they maintain. There's probably a technical term for it that I don't know, but when credits white on black credits pass through a film gate, excuse me, um, there's a little bit of vibration. Mm -hmm. And so you can kind of see white letters uh, sort of like they kind of, they move, but it's near imperceptible. They kind of twitch just a little, they kind of slightly vibrate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Those have been stabilized and that was noticeable immediately. Oh, it's compared to the universal release. Compared to the, yeah. So when I put the arrow release on and the, and it was white words on a black background immediately with the start of the credits, I was like, oh, that's interesting. They've stabilized that. Now, when it came to the actual picture, it looked like the it looked like the colors were were turned up just a notch, just like a hair, but not hugely noticeable. And I may be actually wrong about that. Um, and there seemed to be it wasn't like DNR to hell where stuff looks kind of um, where it gets too soft. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was. Um, it looked like they had maybe reduced some of the film grain, but there was still evident film grain. I would say. I don't mind some film grain yeah. if it means that you're not making it have that Olin Mills look, as I call it. The oddest thing was that the aspect ratio of the universal opening credit sequence is different than the aspect ratio 
of Arrow's it release. Is. Uh, and I don't under, I didn't understand why that was. There are black bars on the side of the screen throughout the credits on the Universal version, and on and then they go away. And on the Arrow release, there are no black bars actually uh, th- uh, at all. This is the first version that's been released in home that was put in the original theatrical aspect radio ratio of one eighty five one. Okay. They've never actually done it in the original aspect ratio before now for home release. So, oh, that, and I, yeah, and even in the when I popped the Universal one on, I was like, "That's a weird ratio," but then it goes away when the credits stop. Mm. I would say if you own the Universal one, I don't necessarily feel like this is a night and day upgrade where you where I would tell you like, "Oh, you have to go out and get this one. This one looks so much better." Like I own the Universal one, and I'm fine. If you don't own Twelve Monkeys at all, the Arrow release is. The better of the two releases. I mean, the adaptation, the, the adding of the feature length documentary, though, is a That's on huge. There. Oh, is it on it's the on Universal, Universal one? one? Okay, fair enough. The, uh, the Q&A is not. This also has a full, solid size booklet that comes with it, too, though, which I'm sure they don't have at the Universal no. one. Sorry, I'm selling for Arrow here. I'm yeah. a huckster for Arrow because I love them. They're the criterion of like like B to D grade movies, but this is an A grade movie that they yeah. got a hold of. This is a film that that Criterion would have been lucky to get a, their chance. It's to weird to me that this is an Arrow release. Even yeah. I'm so used to Arrow being like more or Criterion. Yeah, uh, uh, I'm used to them being more esoteric uh, with is, their releases. And, I, I think it's, I was surprised to see like a. A, a studio, not just a studio movie, but again, like like City Slickers before it, a hit, like an actual big hit, without Oscar nominated movie, and without, it's like, yeah, like both those right, companies but, are are reaching out for a different type of. But like, what I mean movie. is, like to me, it's weird that the studios aren't seeing value in their own library yeah. to the point where they're. I mean, City Slickers was in the top five grossing movies that year, yet. Uh, whose movie is it? Is that Universal's? I don't know whose movie that remember. is. But it's like they had no interest in releasing I think it. it's a distrib- This is Universal's. I think it's and again. a dis- distribution model thing when it comes to late down the line of a film of like how much it costs for the rights to the film to re-release, how much it costs for uh, the, any original extras that exists, um, like as well as probably deals like, well, we get to release it for this long with new features we produced, but because we produce new features that will let you have the right, will revert the rights back to you at some point, um, which I know is often a deal that's made. You when it, when rights revert, revert to you, you will also get the special features that we made, but only after like five years or something. So eventually, when you want to release it yourself, hey, you'll have a much bigger. A package of the, shit to the put questions out. that arise to me in regards to this kind of new frontier, because this is happening a lot now, as you're seeing boutique labels release studio hits. Yeah. And to me, the thing is, I want streaming to catch up, and I don't know how that. I don't know how the, for instance, the Arrow version of Twelve Monkeys becomes the the new standard for streaming platforms as well, because that that is not happening at a at a. There doesn't seem to be any adoption there. You see it a lot with like some of the Vestron home video releases where all of a sudden there's new HD transfers of Return of the Living Dead 3 or right. Dagon, and yet the the streaming transfers that are available legally are all SD 720p versions. And it's like, I wish that there was some sort of, now that you've done the work of cleaning this up, this is now our new version that we use. And and I there doesn't that doesn't seem to be taking place. I, I think part of it is a lot of the streaming companies are waiting what to see what's going to go on with uh you know if everything changes rolls back the tide on the net neutrality thing mm. which seems to be they're going forward this way and all these companies are tentatively 
like putting their fingers in the water of we're thinking about putting a extra charge super HD like streaming version like Netflix has even said we're probably going to be offering a 4K streaming service where it's like okay you pay extra and then a lot of these titles are available in 4K but it's going to cost more because yeah. it costs them a lot more uh, but a lot of it is still them going is this going to last is it going to get overturned everything's obviously everything is in chaos in terms of that uh, a blue Congress would certainly and Senate would certainly choose to uh, address that as an issue of like, oh, we need to fix that issue that got sort of like steamrolled through. So everybody's kind of like on waiting to see what happens. Yeah. Uh, our next title is a 4K release of The Big Lebowski. And surprise, surprise, according to all uh, reports. Anyway, I, I only was able to rewatch the Blu-ray, not the 4K because I don't have 4K TV yet. Um is a really great 4K upgrade of this film, and which is great because the Coen brothers, they make gorgeous movies. Yeah. <laughs> they make incredibly well-shot films, uh, working with terrific cinematographers, like one of their regular people they work with, Roger Deakins, who direct, who uh, did the cinematography on this. The Big Lebowski is one of those films, the first time I saw it, I walked out going, I'm not entirely sure how I felt about that. And I went back the next day and saw it again and went, I think that might be my favorite comedy of all time. Oh, wow. And I'm still kind of of the, I think that might be my favorite comedy of all time. I still don't know, though. It's a weird fucking movie, and it makes me feel different things every time I watch it, mm -hmm. <laughs> depending on what my mood is. Um, I'm so sure you've seen this an endless amount oh, yeah. of times. Oh, yeah, I've seen well. it. All right, well, then I leave it to you to do the description. Oh, God. You're good uh, at this. Your 12 Monkeys was, like, so concise and dead on. Oh, well, let me think of what... Uh, so, in Big Lebowski... Let me try to break this down. Um, there is a, a guy named Jeff Lebowski who's... It's in the 90s, and he's kind of... Uh, 1991. He's a stoner. He's kind of a loser, but he's happy with himself. He's not necessarily, like... He likes his life. Everybody just calls he's, him the dude. Yeah, he's he's fine... Um, just being who he is, hanging out at the bowling alley, drinking white Russians, smoking, smoking weed. Caucasian that's, says that. that yeah, that's his, uh, that's his life. And there's a, um, there's a ransom that is, I'm trying to remember it has been, it's been a little while, but there's a ransom that's sent to the wrong person. He, yeah. they think that it's him. Uh, there's a different Jeff Lebowski who happens to be a millionaire. Yeah. Um, and who's. Is it his daughter that's kidnapped? His daughter is ostensibly kidnapped. Yes, played by what's her name and going to be from, held uh, Tara uh, Reid. Bunny. Yeah, Tara and Reed. it's going to be held held for ransom. So he gets sucked into this ransom scenario that he has he no wants a new rug. Yeah, they pee on his rug. They held the room together. Yeah, they really tied the room together. Yeah. And he's like, I just want a new rug. Mm -hmm. And the rich guy who's like, I'm not having this at all. Um, uh, played by David Huddleston is like. Just insulting him and making fun of him, but then simultaneously offering to pay him to, like, find out who these people are. Yeah. So it's the weirdest back-assward private detective story ever where he's like, I don't even want to be here, man. Like, what the fuck? He's just, I want to live my normal life. And then him having friends like his very over-the-top Vietnam veteran friend, John Goodman, who's super excited about everything. Well, I love that the thing with John Goodman's character <laughs> that so I love <laughs> is that little things that should not set him off make him irrationally angry and really big things he's like completely chill and he's cool like about. He's like zen about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other friend Steve Buscemi is like like kind of 
like they 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 both love him, but then then Walter, who's John Goodman's character, just berates him constantly. But it's clear, especially towards the end, they're like they love. It's a trio. These guys, they've been friends for mm. decades, and Buscemi barely ever has anything to say. And when he does, usually Walter's like, "Shut the fuck up! Yeah. <laughs> You're out of your element, Donnie." <laughs> um, and just such a huge cast of weird, of, of great actors playing super weird. I roles. saw the market as a one guy at uh, when intolerable, not intolerable cruelty, um, burn after reading uh, came out. I saw him. He would come to see it at Barton Creek. Uh, the Galleria or whatever. Uh-huh. Um, and I, and this guy comes walking out of the movie theater. And I'm like, that's the market as a one guy from, uh, from big Lebowski, the long hair and everything. There's so many great people. Julianne Moore plays a in, kind of insane artist here. Uh, who's a major character in this Philip Seymour Hoffman in one of his early roles. I remember seeing him and going, Oh, that guy's great in that. And not really connecting till a few years later. Oh, wow. That was the same guy. That was Philip. C- he was in the big Lebowski. John Turturro creating an iconic character with like seven seconds of screen time. Oh my God. Who's so great. He's like <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was just this gross, arguably a child molester <laughs> character. Uh, Sam Elliott. He's a fucking pederast dude. <laughs> Sam Elliott played the stranger who's the, who's the weirdly out of place yet not out of place at all. Western story narrator here. <laughs> the dude abides. <laughs> um, ben Gazzara, David Thewlis, Peter Stormare, Flea. This is a, I think this is an absolute masterpiece of a film that does in fact take more than one viewing to really let soak in. Man, this, isn't it weird that this movie has a massive gathering that thousands of people show up to every single year? That's it. The repeat viewings of it or repeat airings of it on Comedy Central, um, really helped this movie gain uh, gain an audience and gain a following that it didn't necessarily have in theaters. It's really interesting too, because the movie is so unconventional that it's to see it adopted by such a wide audience is like, it, it really is like a movie that a lot of people love, like a Shawshank Redemption or something like that, where you can all find all kinds of people that will tell you that they love that movie. It's, I actually dressed up as Walter one year for Halloween, even as like I said, it's just a movie that just makes me feel good every single time I watch it. Yeah, I love it. I love film noir. I love the Coen Brothers. I love almost every actor in this thing. It's just great. <laughs> um, and there's no new special features. The 4K is great, uh, but th- includes the Blu-ray from the previous really good limited edition set they put out, which is packed with bonus features. So this is by far, I mean, you're not missing anything from that previous set, which was previously the best version available. It just includes that disc, unless you, I guess, preferred the artwork from that particular case. Is it the book? The one that looked like the book? Yeah. Okay. And then now there's there's a version of this you can get as well that comes with like sort of a bigger, more elaborate anniversary case with like a bowling, like ball handle thing yeah. on it. But I never get that shit. I'm like, I, don't have, I want stuff that fits on my shelf, not stuff I have to put somewhere on a shelf with special lights on it or something. But yeah, this is great stuff. And if you've never seen it. You should. Our last movie is the Marvel film Ant-Man and the Wasp, which we just gave away a copy to our fans. I'm very excited oh. to do that. Yeah. Oh, look at that disappointed face. Right no, there. I'm not disappointed. He's said the sad face. No, that was a sad. I was like, oh. Yeah, we, we, got, gave away, we gave a copy we gave to the fans. Yeah. Uh, this is uh, the latest 
Marvel film we've seen now on a Blu-ray. We long break between movies between our next one, which is Captain Marvel, which give it to me now. Um, but that's not going to happen unless you know a secret. What, what, do you know you someone who can show it to us right now? Oh, today? No. Captain Marvel? No, not right Come now. Come on, you're the end guy. You do comic books. No, I don't know. You're a comic right book now. guy. No. No. Uh, no. I thought that would work. No. Totally, I don't know. totally told my wife. I was like, we're going to watch Captain Marvel tonight because I'm going to go to John Golson. He draws comic books. He'll be like, he'll know someone. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> Let me get Stan Lee on the horn and he'll, he'll thread the projector for us. <laughs> Uh, this is the sequel to their film Ant-Man, uh, both films directed by Peyton Reed, who admittedly is the most odd choice they've made in the latter days for a guy to bring into the Marvel Universe. He's definitely that sort of more family film type of guy. I was like, well, I have to mean, uh, he was one of the guys in the running for Fantastic Four back in the day mm-hmm. before Tim Story got it. Yeah. And I bet that that's, was I, I have to imagine job. that's when Kevin, Kevin Feige and, and, Peyton Reed met, and they probably had had hit it off well, and and wouldn't surprise me if I kind of back pocketed him in regards to like oh, I'd like to work with that guy someday. I can see that. Um, I will say uh, this movie, which continues on from the mythology of the original one, uh, where now because of the events of Captain America: Civil War, where uh, Scott Lang, um, good lord, what's his name, um, uh, Paul Rudd, is under house arrest because he was not supposed to go and fight and help Captain America, who at this point of the story is still considered a fugitive and everyone on that side of things is considered a fugitive. He's under, he's been under house arrest for a while and he's, it's not all terrible. He's bored, but at least he gets to spend time with his daughter. He's not in jail. He's excited mm-hmm. about that. And this is very much a family film in the sense that it's about this guy who, no matter what else happens, he is wants to make sure his relationship with his daughter is intact. Uh, But all this is threatened when he has a dream about the, uh, the previous, uh, the wife of uh, Hank Pym played by Michelle Pfeiffer, Janet Van Dyne. That's from the viewpoint of his daughter, uh, Evangeline Lilly. And he kind of calls them and leaves a message is like, Hey, I had this weird fucking dream. It's very strange. And almost immediately, like the next day, he's abducted by Hank Pym and, and Evangeline Lilly, or like uh, Michael Douglas and Evangeline Lilly, who are like, okay, well, it's, it turns out that's weird because we had just opened up a hold of the quantum realm at the exact moment you had that dream, apparently. And we think there's a connection. And of course, he gets sucked back into this thing of dealing with, like, as you are, when you're indicted for a federal crime, you can't associate with any of your old associates, what have you, especially not people who are themselves fugitives. And then you've got things like other people who are after them. Like there's gangsters that are after PIM technology that are being led by Walton Goggins. And another relatively thankless Walton Goggins role, sadly, who I think is capable of so much more than what he's given. I think I've only ever seen him in thankless roles because I still don't get it. Have you watched Justified? No. Oh, my God. I saw him in the G.I. Joe movie, though. Just watch Justified. (laughs) You will be the biggest Walton Goggins fan in the world once you watch Justified. Okay. You'll be like, this guy's one of the greatest screen villains of all time. Like, seriously. Uh, Bobby Cannavale cracks me up here because you expect him to be secretly evil because he's Bobby Cannavale or have more of a thing. But his whole – the deal – the idea that he is Hank Pym's – not Hank Pym's. I'm Scott Lang's ex-wife's new husband, and I think – He's kind of in love with Scott Lang. Like, he has, not like in a sexual way. He's like, God, you're so amazing. Like, every time he sees him, he gives this huge hug. And there's all these weird little details like that throughout this movie that are awkward but funny that I really like a lot. But I can see why they didn't necessarily translate to a 
a lot of the more Marvel-y fans. Yeah. I think this is a super cute comedy. I also think it was badly timed in terms of release. Like, did this really, was this a movie you wanted to release between Avengers 3 and the next movie that specifically is very mythology-oriented Captain Marvel? It felt like, oh, we want a breath of fresh air. I'm like, I'm not sure that was it. I think you you basically made a bunch of people go, yeah, 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 whatever. Get to the next thing. Yeah. Who were super, like, we're all, everyone's on tenterhooks. And I think a lot of people are harder on this film than they should have been because of that. But what do you think of this movie? I think it's fine. I think it's fine. It's cute. Could have um, used more Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, it could have used more everything. Um, I, I, I probably, it's one of the few that I've walked out of. And just kind of been like, okay, like that was it. It was fine. Um, yeah, I think I, I think I wanted more, more of what I'm not sure, but I don't know. You know, they introduced Ghost, and Ghost originally was like a, a sort of an anti-technology terrorist that was introduced in the Iron Man comics. Right. Um, Played here by Hannah John Cannon. In this, that's not really the story. Uh, she is, they they borrow elements from other things that I've read. Like, for instance, you know, how many X-Men comics have we read where Kitty Pride can't control her phasing and she's going to phase into existence, out of existence. And that's sort of the dilemma here is that she's got this, this kind of phasing ghost abilities that she's gotten through this technology and it's affecting her and she's starting to phase out. And so she is also on the hunt to steal tech to prevent herself from, from phasing out and dying. And it's weird. It kind of, it kind of like messes with the movie a little bit in a way that I'm surprised nobody really sat down to mess with, which is like, they are going to risk everything on someone that they'd already assumed dead, but they won't stop everything to save somebody who's alive right in front of them. No, I agree. That is and a major problem. Weird. Yeah, that, that is an, <laughs> an issue, and I think that's part of the reason why the movie chooses to move as quickly as it does from one thing to the other, because if you stop too long and start to think about th- those things, it's going to fall apart for yeah. you on some level. But it is, like I said, this is a Peyton Reed film, and that... Part of the problem with his filmography has always been he doesn't think about the actual bigger fallout of the major, like the the emotional plot elements that are there. He just wants to get you from one scene to the next and have fun doing it. And I think he accomplishes that. But this is the, what, 19th film in a continuing story of movies? We've been trained to have an eye on paying attention at this point to everything. And most of the Marvel stuff's pretty tight. Like most of the Marvel stuff is. It, that kind of thing would be corrected by something. Um, and in this, it just, it kind of lays. And then that overall sort of weakens the heroism of the, of the leads. I, I, I thought it was just fine. And that's not necessarily what I'm used to walking out of a Marvel movie thinking. Um, and this one, I was sure. like, this one, I was like, it's fine. It, it, it delivered more of what you got with the first one. Yeah. But, I'm, I might have wanted something slightly different from I give, the first one. I give it like an A on dad-daughter relationship stuff. Yeah. I give it a, both in both examples of that. I give it a, you know, a B 
on uh, a solid B, B plus maybe on very creative action scenes using what we have and expanding upon it. I still love the bit with using a salt shaker to block the door. Like yeah. Expanding it. I love the thing that now they've got expanding guns and all the stuff with the, you know, driving under a car when super small, then expanding to the, a lot of that stuff is really great. Um, but I'd probably give it like a C minus on like, like the, the emotional content of like, the actual plot, as it were, like even in the third act, when it starts getting into the Janet Van Dyne stuff, you're like, this feels like it should be, there should be more here yeah, going on. And I hate the fact that they, it, there's a cheap out post credit scene with the civil war tie in. A lot of people are like, Oh, wait, didn't Infinity. you feel emotional? Yeah. I'm like, no. Cause did you really, do you in any way, shape or form feel like that there's more than one movie before these characters aren't back to all life again? There's no, What? Like, it just felt cheap. It felt like I was sort of like, oh, it felt like they made this movie four years ago and went, oh, we got better film and extra scene because now we're releasing it here is what it yeah. felt like. Yeah. I think the individual pieces are better than the whole. Um, I do okay. like scenes. I do like moments. I like um, David Dastmalchian, who always plays psycho villains. Always. They're slowly moving him up to and a bunch of stuff lately into playing characters who are not, who are protagonists, who often are troubled. Here he's playing a comedic guy who's like, oh, you're a good guy who works with, uh, 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 what's his name? Um, Michael Pena. Yeah. And I'm like, I kind of love, I, I have this thing about when guys who are stuck in a specific type of character actor part get a chance to do something else. And I always go, yay. Like fear of the walking dead has an actor who's never played anything but villains. And now they've made them this totally lovable, great character, like just a teddy bear of a guy. And I'm like, good for you. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> you prove you don't have to be a psycho villain every single time. Yeah. Uh, I actually was weirdly excited to see <laughs> this actor, uh, playing this role. Um, and, and obviously the, the, the moment with, with, uh, uh, I just said his name, Pena is a little too, like, we're just waiting for them to go back into the moment of the first one where he hyper explains something. I was kind of like, it just wasn't as satisfying this time. I don't know. Yeah. I would say that's, that is, that's kind of the problem across the board with Ant-Man and the Wasp is that none of the things that it does that are in the first one. It is a it is a movie that is, suffers from law of diminishing returns, um, and maybe just know. it just feels so not a piece of the bigger part of the universe as opposed to almost all the other films. You know, Guardians of the Galaxy weren't, but they felt like they were starting their own big important mythology that could go anywhere. Mm -hmm. This is so localized. You're like, it really doesn't feel like it's part of the rest of the films. Yeah. Uh, there's a making up featurettes, uh, four pieces, which is the usual type of thing you expect from Marvel. Well done, but there are, which they, they are not EPK thing. They're just, you know, if you're interested, here's how they did it, did it all. The best part of this is not, there's a gag re reel. There's Tim Heidecker plays a small role in here. I'm not a Tim Heidecker fan, but whatever. But there's, all right. So one of the great Stanley cameos, the thing where like he puts his keys in his car 
And it gets hits with a shrink ray and shrinks really small. He's like, that's what I get for doing all that acid in the 60s, which I thought was cute, right? Yeah. Well, apparently that was like one of like 20 different lines they tried out. So they actually have for the first time, as far as I'm aware, all the outtakes of him doing all the other variations on lines for that, which is really cute thing to do. There's uh, only about a minute 38 of deleted scenes, none of which are really much, with the commentary by Peyton Reed. And there's audio commentary by Peyton Reed. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Digital Noise. John, I'm sorry. That was a longer than usual episode. It's okay. We had a lot of movies worth talking about. We yeah. did. There's been a lot of times, I, I, you know, you can't always, the Russian roulette of the stack. Uh, sometimes you know. there's not much to say. Yeah. And sometimes there's way too much to say. Yeah. And this time we had, a, we had in the stack or some bona fide classics. Yeah. Uh, um, probably a higher ratio of like real films that stand the test of time, I, so they're going to get talked about. I was genuinely more. excited to hand the stack to you. I was like, oh yeah, John's going to be all like, his eyes are going to light up. He's going to be like, you're actually handing me a stack of good movies. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've heard of most of these. <laughs> uh, but that's it. I'll be back shortly with a new episode with Aaron, and uh, thanks for tuning in. Please use our links on the actual oneofus.net page to click on to uh, go to buy these things. We get a kickback, and honestly, Christmas time is coming up, and I could, I, I, we could, I could use the money if nothing else to buy presents for my lovely wife. Who it's the only reason I can do this is because she's wildly oversupportive. Um, also, just so you guys know, and I put it on the page as well. But Digital Noise has its own iTunes feed, its own Spotify feed, its own Stitcher feed. Go to those things. Follow us on those things. Give us a good ratings on those things. That makes a huge difference with visibility. Please do that thing, those things, and we really appreciate it. Until then, please check out Halloween Man by John Golson and that other guy. Uh, Drew something. Halloween Man Bat City Special. Yeah. Drew Edwards. Yeah, Drew Edwards. It's not Struzan. I wanted to say Struzan, but that's oh, gosh. guy entirely. No, that'd be showing me up. Don't, don't put me in a book with your Struzan. <laughs> Make me look like standing next to the ugly girl or whatever. So <laughs> I don't want to know. Thank you. I'll be back in probably about less than a week. Bye.